As I mentioned, we are starting a new series this morning uh, that I've entitled Unmasked. In fact, I announced this on social media yesterday and woke up this morning to a comment from someone on one of my social media pages, someone I don't know, who thought it was um, strange and bizarre that I would name, especially during this time, a series... (laughs) called Unmasked, because there's no subtitle to the series. So if you just see the graphic, like you see right there, it doesn't tell you what it is. So as far as this person knew, I was going to be preaching a sermon on why we shouldn't wear masks, okay? Which is not at all what this sermon series is about. Um, And I explained in a response to this guy um, that it is a series on the Ten Commandments, whereby we will see how God's law unmasks us and exposes our dire need for God's grace. Um, So that's what this series is all about. We're going to be making our way through the Ten Commandments. um, And honestly, for those who crave to-do lists, if you really, really like to-do lists, that to-do lists give you a sense of control, you know? As long as you have a to-do list in front of you, you can control the outcome of your life. Well, if that describes you, you are going to love this series because what God gives us in the Ten Commandments is a checklist on how to be perfect in just ten simple steps. If you can master these steps, okay, um, you will be perfect as God is perfect. Um, But In order to launch this series, rather than look at one of the Ten Commandments themselves, uh, it's important to put them in context. And in order to do that, I want us to look at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. This will make sense in a minute. Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Matthew chapter 5, the first two verses. And as I said, I'll explain in a minute why we are launching a series on the Ten Commandments by looking at the first two verses in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Doesn't seem to be a direct connection between those verses and the Ten Commandments, but there is, and I'll show you what that is in just a moment. Um, I said a second ago that what God gives us in the Ten Commandments is a checklist, a simple to-do list on how to be perfect uh, in ten simple steps, and we laugh at that, Um, but this is often the way we view the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. It's kind of the way I view the Ten Commandments growing up. It's kind of the way the Ten Commandments were taught to me when I was growing up. Uh, We treat them like they are a ladder to God, like they are a divinely delivered self-help manual on how to get God's love and how to get God's blessings, that if we can just keep the Ten Commandments, we can ensure that we will get God's love and get God's blessings. The problem with treating them this way, however, is the assumption, the underlying assumption that we actually have the ability to keep them, okay? Um, C.S. Lewis, I've, I've used this quote on numerous occasions. You perhaps have heard me use it before, but C.S. Lewis said famously that no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good, okay? Um, 
He was right. The primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is to expose us. The primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is to unmask us, to knock us down, to level us. That's what their primary purpose is. In other words, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder we climb, but a wall we crash into so that we will finally cry out, I can't do it. That's what they are, ultimately. The Ten Commandments, in other words, show us our need for a rightness, a righteousness that we can never, ever attain on our own, an impossible righteousness that is out of our reach. They are intended to expose, to unmask our helplessness before God because it's only when we finally admit that we can't do it that we will then look to the one who did everything for us. That's their primary purpose. Um, So each week, we're going to look at one of the commandments. Um, But as I mentioned, to introduce this series, uh, we skipped ahead to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the famous Sermon on the Mount unarguably the most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus preached this sermon on the mount, and the purpose of Jesus's sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is to explain the Ten Commandments. That's his purpose. Matthew wants us to see that this sermon that Jesus preached is on the Ten Commandments, and the way he wants us to see that is to show us how Jesus here is reenacting Israel's history, okay? Now, let me explain this. This is fascinating, Um, and it's super important that we get this because if we don't understand how Jesus treats the Ten Commandments, we will not rightly treat the Ten Commandments. Um, So, remember Israel's history, okay? God's children uh, were in Israel, uh, and a ruler orders the slaughter of babies. Remember Pharaoh with Moses? Uh, The Israelites were growing larger in number than the Egyptians, and the leader of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, was beginning to get a little nervous because he thought, if these people begin to outnumber us, they can overtake us. And so, what did he do? To solve the problem, he ordered the kill of every male Israelite two years old and younger, okay? Um, and so a ruler, Pharaoh, orders the slaughter of babies. God then calls them out of Egypt. Remember, he raises up Moses and leads his children out of slavery, leads them out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. They were organized according to 12 tribes. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive God's law from him, the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's broad picture. Um, Well, Matthew's retelling of Jesus's life from birth to right now, uh, is this, that God's child is in Egypt because a ruler ordered the slaughter of babies. Remember? Remember um, King Herod hears from the wise men that a king was born and he felt threatened by that. And so he ordered uh, all of the children to be 
killed all of the children two years old and younger to be killed, hoping that in the slaughter of all of these babies, he would end up killing this child king that he was hearing about. Um, And so God's child is in Egypt. Jesus and his family flee to Egypt because the ruler, King Herod, ordered the slaughter of babies. And so he's called out of Egypt. He passes through the waters of baptism. He spends 40 days and nights in the wilderness. He calls 12 disciples. And in our verses, what does it say? He ascends to the mountain and begins to teach. Now, that's not accidental, okay? Matthew is not retelling the story of Jesus' beginning and his life accidentally. He wants us to see that this section in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 clearly parallels that part of Israel's history where they receive the Ten Commandments. That's what he wants us to see. In other words, this is Matthew's way of saying that this whole sermon is about God's law and specifically how to understand the purpose of God's law. So our conclusions regarding what the Ten Commandments are And how to interpret the Ten Commandments, how to handle the Ten Commandments, how to view the Ten Commandments must be consistent with what Jesus says the Ten Commandments are and how Jesus interprets them. That's why we're launching a series on the Ten Commandments by looking at the Sermon on the Mount and specifically those two verses because we will never rightly understand, as I said a minute ago, what the Ten Commandments are, their purpose, their function, how to understand them, how to interpret them, unless we first see how Jesus teaches the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus say they are? So Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to those who thought they were keeping the Ten Commandments. It's his whole purpose. Jesus' entire purpose in preaching the Sermon on the Mount is to un mask his hearers. These people who thought they were keeping the Ten Commandments, they were pulling it off, they were doing what God wanted them to do, and Jesus' goal is to show that God's law is far more demanding than we realize. He shows that God's demands throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows that God's demands extend beyond outer behavior, to what's in the heart. You see, the, the way that we typically define righteousness has to do almost exclusively with what a person does or does not do. Virtue is purely a matter of outer conduct. We can tell whether or not someone's virtuous, righteous, simply by watching what they do or watching what they don't do. A righteous person, in our understanding, is one who does the right things and avoids the wrong things. An unrighteous person is one who does the wrong things and avoids the right things. This is the way the world defines righteousness. I mean, think about it. Law enforcement institutions are concerned with right behavior. They don't care why people obey the law. They're not concerned primarily about why you're keeping the law as long as you obey it. The person who keeps the law is righteous regardless of their motivation, okay? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus breaks radically 
from this definition of righteousness. This idea that righteousness is purely a matter of outer conduct, that virtue is purely a matter of behavior, right behavior. Um, he, he breaks radically from that definition of righteousness. He cuts through the outer behavior of a person and he looks at what's in the heart. Now, you may say, based on that, that that's good news, you know? Um, I mean, well, that's a relief. I mean, God sees my heart. Regardless of how much I may screw up, at least he sees my intentions. You know, it's a, it's a good thing that God cuts through outer behavior and looks at what's in the heart because 1 Samuel 16, 7 says very plainly, for the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we read that and we find relief in that. You know, I remember a time when that verse was a great comfort to me. I thought to myself, thank God that he sees my heart. That God doesn't evaluate me the way others evaluate me. Other people reject me based solely on what they see, but God sees my heart. He sees the real me. He sees behind the curtain of my rough exterior to the softness of my well-intentioned heart. Uh, Then I realized this awful, awful truth, okay? I have hate in my heart. I have envy in my heart. I have Lust and pride and greed and selfishness in my heart. We all do. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 verse 9 says it very plainly. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's God's diagnosis of our heart. I realized then that I'd actually be a lot better off if God saw as humans see. (laughs) That I would actually be better off if God only evaluated me based on my outer conduct. Um, Because far from taking comfort in the idea that God saw the inner beauty that no one else could see, I realized that God actually saw the inner ugliness that I was able to hide from almost everybody else. Well, that's scary. It makes you feel very exposed. Dare I say, unmasked. Like the rest of humanity, I'm sure this is true for you too. In fact, I know it's true for you. Um, like the rest of humanity, I'm, I'm good at tricking people. <laughs> I think it was Chris Rock, the comedian, who said, when people first meet us, they're never meeting us. They're simply meeting our representative. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He understands that's true. Uh, I mean, I'm good at tricking people. We all are. I'm good at covering over the worst parts of myself. I'm good at photoshopping my profile, okay? Uh, I'm good at concealing my inner darkness from other people. But unfortunately for you and for me, God sees all that stuff that we hide from others. This is what God's law does. It exposes us. It announces that we have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. It exposes the darkness of our hearts, 
not just the imperfections of our behavior. I think most of us would readily admit that we are imperfect. You know, I love when people say that, when they say something like, well, I'm not perfect. I always want to say, no one assumed you were. <laughs> like that, that qualification is completely unnecessary. It wasn't like I was assuming you were, and you just told me I, you weren't. Well, now I have information I didn't have before, okay? Um, you know, saying, well, I'm not perfect, may be an acceptable thing for us to say to one another. The problem is, perfection is the only thing God accepts. So, when we admit obviously, that we are imperfect, as if that is supposed to bring some relief. Well, I mean, I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm better than that guy, but I'm not perfect. Um, I've, I've shared this quote with you before from my friend David Zoll, who says, we may all admit that we fall short of God's glory, but that, for some reason, never stops us from comparing distances, Okay. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Uh, that admission of imperfection is uh, an invitation to condemnation since God only accepts perfection, only. Well, we have a problem on our hands then, um, a big problem. If, if God, for instance, were only concerned with outer conduct, good behavior, Jesus would have showcased the Pharisees and told all of us to imitate them because they were great at that. I mean, there was no one better in Jesus' day at outer conduct, good religious behavior, crossing religious T's and dotting religious I's. There was no one better at that than the Pharisees. But Jesus didn't tell us to imitate them. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're a brood of vipers. You're clean on the outside and you're dead on the inside. He was constantly pointing out the fact that they were successful in achieving external righteousness because they thought that's what mattered most to God. But Jesus shows that God's demands extend to what goes on inside of us. Not just the outside, but inside of us. Our, our feelings, our motivations, not just our external actions, must be absolutely pure, sin-free, and perfect. Perfect. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only condemns adultery, but lust. He says, you guys think you're doing pretty well because you haven't committed adultery and you're keeping the law on the outside. But if we take a look under the surface at your heart, we discover lust. And Jesus says um, that adultery and lust, while they may elicit two different sets of consequences horizontally, they are both equally liable to God's judgment. He does the same thing with murder and anger. He says, I, you know, um, 
I know that you guys think you're pulling it off. You're keeping the law by not murdering anybody. But I tell you, if you have ever been vengeful or angry toward anyone for one second in your life, you are just as guilty before God. That's Jesus' way of saying that God's law cuts through the outer behavior of a person, which is something we can control a little bit. We can edit that stuff. Um, We can do our best to put our best foot forward. We can polish our masks on a daily basis so that people only see what we want them to see, but God sees beyond all that stuff. And he says it's not good enough... um, that you don't murder, you must never, ever be angry either, vengeful. Um, God's law doesn't suggest that we simply try hard to get it right on the inside. It demands that we be perfect on the outside and the inside. There's no wiggle room here. None. You must always love perfectly, sacrificially, selflessly, not just on the outside, but on the inside too. In other words, you must always want to love perfectly and selflessly and sacrificially. It's not just enough to do it on the outside. You must also want to do it. You know, I'm not sure where we got this idea that doing the right thing, even when we don't want to do it, is virtuous. Now, let me qualify that. Let me clarify that. I'm not suggesting that you only do the right thing when you feel like doing it, okay? Do the right thing even when you don't feel like doing it. You'll save yourself and the people around you a lot of heartache. Just do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. But it's a whole different thing to equate that with the righteousness that God requires, Okay. In fact, doing the right thing, even when we don't want to do it, doesn't reveal devout righteousness. It reveals unrighteousness. What did Jesus say? With your lips, you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. So this idea that, you know, well, just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do the right thing, even if we don't want to do it. Yes, do that, but then don't get proud of yourself and think that that is the most honoring thing before God. The fact that your hearts aren't in it reveals deep unrighteousness, not devout righteousness. Um, So you must, according to God's law, never, ever hurt anyone, ever, physically, emotionally, relationally, and you must always, always, always help everyone. Physically, emotionally, and relationally. You must never harbor grudges, ever. You must never, ever seek retribution, ever. In fact, you must never even want to seek retribution, So let's say you want to seek retribution. You want to get someone back. It's there in your heart, but you restrain yourself. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to restrain myself. I want to get this person back, but I'm not going to do it. 
I'm going to do the right thing. That is a categorical failure to keep God's law. Because you must not only um, not seek retribution, the desire to seek retribution isn't allowed in your heart, according to God's law, okay? Um, You must never withhold forgiveness from anyone who wrongs you, ever. In fact, you must never even want to withhold forgiveness from anyone who wrongs you, ever. So when someone cheats you, instead of trying to get your stuff or your money back, Jesus says you have to give them more. Someone comes into your house in the middle of the night, you wake up, you see them stealing your television, and you say, well, hold on a second. I got something else for you, okay? (laughs) Clearly, you are a person in need. Let me go give you my wife's jewelry and whatever money I have in my wallet, okay? Um, You have to turn the other cheek to your most aggressive enemies. And you must do all of these things because you want to do them, not because you have to do them. In other words, your love for others and service to others must be perfectly selfless. Or in Jesus' words, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's depressing. You know, I don't care how good you think you are. Based on that, we understand why Paul says there is no one good. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. How could Paul say that? He doesn't know me. (laughs) He must be thinking of someone really bad. If he were thinking of me, he would have never said something like that. No, when we are evaluated, diagnosed, not based on comparing ourselves with the person next to us, but based on God's demands, we can easily admit and honestly admit we're not good. The goodness of God's law shows us our badness. And it's intended to. Because we will never, ever, as we'll see in a minute, we will never, ever look to the one who alone came to set us free, the one who alone is good, until we first come to terms with how badly we need him. We won't. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? And said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus walked through all the Ten Commandments. And this guy had the audacity to say, I've been doing that since I was a kid. That's child's play, Jesus. Give me something else. Is that all you got? You know? And Jesus says, okay, um, go sell everything you have and come follow me. And what does it say? He walked away sad. 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 God's demands are comprehensive, total. It demands my life, my all, my heart, everything. Everything. Um, I wouldn't get that. (laughs) Jesus is calling. One other way to put it is... um, 
we will never appreciate God's goodness until we first come to terms with our badness. It's impossible. What do we celebrate? You know, we're going to, in the first Sunday in April, celebrate Easter. Good Friday, Easter, you know, people around the world will gather in churches and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. On Good Friday, they will uh, recognize and celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus for sinners. And on Easter Sunday, they will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we come and we get dressed up and, uh, you know, we all look nice and we look pretty and we come and we sing the songs. And, well, what's it all for? Why did it even have to happen? It's the same thing I said on Christmas Eve. You know, we celebrate Christmas. We love, I love Christmas. Love it. Everything about it. I love it. Um, but sometimes in our celebration of Christmas, Easter even, we forget why these things were even necessary. Why did God have to come? We needed divine intervention. Why? Because no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, no matter how focused we may get, we cannot fulfill God's demands. We can't. Especially in light of how Jesus explains them in this sermon. Um, Only when we see that God's law is inflexible will we then see that God's grace is indispensable. That's the only way. The only way we will ever, the only way we will ever, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes, um, because I am robustly committed to preaching the same thing every week, okay? Now, I've said this before. I'm not preaching from the same passage every week. I'm not saying the same words every week, but the message is the same every week, every week. The preachers are not called to say 10,000 different things. They're called to say one thing 10,000 different ways, That's what they're called to do. So it's not my job to stand up and give you a commentary on this or that or give you my opinion about this or that or whatever the case may be or, you know, give you advice on this or that. That's not my job. My job is to preach God's diagnosis of you and to preach God's deliverance of you every week. Every week. Okay, that's that's my job. Um, And uh, as a result of that being my commitment, there have been times when people have said, Okay, we get it. Can we move on to something else now? You know? I mean, you're, you're the grace guy. And you talk about grace. I mean, isn't there other things to talk about? Um, isn't it your responsibility to talk to us about other things? And I say, the only person who asks a question like that or says something like that is someone who has so cheapened the demands of God's law that they don't think they need to hear about God's grace anymore, okay? Because the problem inside churches is not cheap grace, as some call it. It's cheap law. It's lowering the bar of God's demands so low that we actually think we can pull it off, that we can actually hurdle God's demands. We can do it. Well, when we think we can do it, Who's the one that we take our eyes off of? Jesus. What's, he's, he's, he's not necessary. You know, he was, he was a really important figure to get us in the game. But I can take it from here. Um, that's what the 
person is actually saying when they say, can't we talk about something else? Um, that's kind of what the rich young ruler was saying, you know? What, what, what must I do? Well, do all the, okay, I've done all that. Now, what else? So Jesus hits them where it hurts. Go sell everything you got, everything, and come follow me. And he left. Um, ultimately, God's law is a mirror, and it shows us who we really are, and it shows us what we really need. And it shows us who Jesus really is for us. That's what God's law is intended to do. So the good news, and I'll conclude with this, um, of the Sermon on the Mount comes in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That doesn't sound like good news at first glance. It is the best news. Because he's just finished explaining, and he will go on throughout the Sermon on the Mount explaining just how comprehensive God's demands are. And if it's up to us to fulfill it, we're in trouble. So when Jesus announces, I didn't come to do away with it, sweep it under the rug, I came to fulfill it for you. Sometimes that's what we do when it comes to God's demands, is we get God's demands confused with God's unconditional love, and we think to ourselves, well, an expression of God's unconditional love is the lessening of his demands. An expression of God's unconditional love is that he says, well, you know, I mean, I, was, I said the whole be perfect thing, but really because I like you, it's just try hard, okay? But don't tell your buddy because I'm still trying to get him to be perfect, okay? But just for you, because I really like you. Like it's the way we sometimes understand God's love is that it is uh, the way God expresses his love to us is that he lessens the demands or he sweeps them under the rug. But the cross of Jesus tells us something very different. When Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what, that's what we deserve. So when we look at the cross of Jesus, what we see is one who is taking on himself the deserved punishment that we ought to be experiencing. Jesus did it. God's love and God's justice meet at the cross. God can't lessen his demands. God is perfect. He only accepts perfection. And so uh, the way we become acceptable to God is when Jesus imparts or imputes his perfect record onto us and he clothes us in his perfect righteousness. So we become acceptable to God only because of what Jesus has done for us. He fulfilled the law, every jot, every tittle, Jesus fulfilled for us. Um, we see this, Jesus' fulfillment of the law, we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus, for instance, didn't retaliate in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was attacked. Um, he, but he healed his attacker in the garden when Peter was fighting for him. Remember, the soldiers come and Peter grabs his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus looks at Peter and says, what are, you, what are you doing? 
And he picks up the guy's ear and he puts it back on. And by doing so, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, winning this war involves dying, not killing. He actually gives. Jesus actually gives. When you read the Gospels, he gives to those who asked of him sight, healing, life, forgiveness. He went the extra mile with the splinters of the cross digging into his naked, bleeding back. All of the things that we see Jesus demanding in the Sermon on the Mount, he fulfilled. He loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him as he hung on the cross. He looked at those who were mocking him, killing him, and saying, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. No idea. The lawmaker became the law keeper and died for us, the lawbreakers. That's Christianity. That the lawmaker became the law keeper and died for us, the lawbreaker. So because of Jesus, our anger, our murder, our lust, our adultery, our lies, our hatred, all of that stuff is forgiven. And while you may remember your sins and while other people may remember your sins, God does not. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. God actually does forgive and forget. So real freedom happens in our lives when the gift of perfection outvolumes the demand for perfection. That's when real freedom happens. When you're finally free enough to admit that you can't please a perfect God, you'll be free enough to rest in the one who is perfect for you. That's when real freedom happens. That's when you can take off your mask and be free, where you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to spend so much time and energy um, photoshopping your profile in life. You don't. It's just, it's freedom. I mean, you just, you, it, there is, people who are free are beautifully dangerous because there is a sanctified, I don't careness about their approach to life. It's a, to live as Christ, to die as gain kind of approach to life. Um, Jesus fulfilled all of God's perfect conditions so that our relationship to God could be perfectly unconditional. That's what he did. So rest assured, before God, the perfection of Jesus is all you need. Before God, the perfection of Jesus is all you have. Let's pray together.